Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hello, welcome in everyone. We are continuing through Revelation. And uh, we said in the last episode we were going to go through Revelation 7. I don't know if that's true. We're going to try. We'll get started. Okay. We did the first, what, four seals on a... Yep. The other day. So we're going to pick up with number five. Yep. Okay, cool. Let's go ahead and kick that off. So you want me to read that? Sure. Yeah, let's go to the fifth seal. Revelation chapter five, chapter six, verses nine through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So you have these, these are people who are, we're hearing the cries of dead people. So that's the characters in there. There's a lot more here where the other one just had like a sentence or two. There's a lot more information about uh, what's happening in the fifth seal. Yes, absolutely. And it's a very, very, very important distinction. So one of the things I'm going to continue to point out is that the structure of the book of Revelation is really important for helping us understand how to interpret it correctly. The idea being in popular interpretations of the book of Revelation is that John's simply seeing a timeline of events that happen one after the other, after the other, after the other, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And instead, I'm arguing, no, John's writing a narrative, a literary work, of a literary masterpiece, and he's weaving a story together, and the clues of that story are the way he's laying the story out. Sometimes he goes backwards, sometimes he moves forward. He groups these things together, he groups those things together. And understanding and recognizing those literary cues is really critical. So what happens here in the fifth seal is you see a very significant change. The first four seals are clearly grouped together and the fifth and sixth seals are actually paired together and we'll talk about the seventh later. One of the significant changes, of course, is that in the first four seals, each time John says, I heard, chapter six, one, three, five, and seven. With the opening of the fifth seal, all of a sudden he says, I saw. It's no longer Mm -hmm. I heard, but I saw. Of course, the fifth seal does not refer to any of the four living creatures. The first four seals, one of the four living creatures said, come. That doesn't happen any longer. Obviously, there's only four living creatures, so they have to like start repeating themselves. And then, of course, the first four seals each have a rider on on a different colored horse. And there's four horses. And so obviously now with the fifth seal, there's no longer a rider. So now with the fifth seal, John saw underneath the altar, the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and clearly marking off the fifth seal now from the first, from the first four seals. And the key then is that the fifth seal now is introducing us to the people of God. And this is going to be really significant. And they cry out, how long, O Lord, which is a common cry of the prophets in the book of Psalms as well. And it's the, the cry is a cry or a plea to God, give them relief from their present suffering. So when they're crying out, though, it almost sounds like vengeance. Yeah. And I, you you look at other passages in the in the New Testament, especially where I think on Romans chapter twelve, places like that, where it talks about not seeking vengeance because right. it's God who is going to the one who in, in back enacts vengeance. So, it, what is the attitude of these people right now? Is it is it a proper thing that they're calling out for? Yeah, uh, the prophetic cry for the people of God is not a vindictive plea for vengeance, but a petition to God for justice. It seems like a nuance a little bit, like, oh, you're just kind of pulling the wool over my eyes a little bit, but that's actually a really important distinction. It's not a vindictive plea for vengeance, but a petition to God for justice. So I think, I'm pretty sure we did it in our podcast, 
But one of the very first episodes, we opened up the book of Psalms and said, the people of God are rejoicing because God's brought justice. And like, why are they so happy? And the answer is because they've got brought justice for the poor and for the oppressed. So the difference between just between vengeance and justice is that vengeance is taking it into your own hands. So what they're doing is an ex- expressing the desire for God to manifest his righteousness on the earth. So they're saying, God, when are you going to bring your kingdom in fullness? And of course, the answer is, well, not yet. I'm thinking through the book so far that we've looked at, and we, we see the church in chapters two and three, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't actually hear from the church. We hear about the church by means of the the prophecy that, that, the, that God is giving through Jesus. And then we, we hear the people of God or whoever that might be around the throne in chapters four and five. Mm-hmm. But is this the first time we've actually heard from the people of God? In the book, and, and it's yeah, kind of a say prayer from them. Yeah, yeah. So a, a little bit. I think what you might be hinting at is the the popular understanding of the Book of Revelation is that the church has been raptured in chapter four, and they're no longer in the story. They're only in the story in the first two, two or three chapters. They're everywhere in the story, and so in chapter five, Jesus had purchased for God men from every uh-huh, nation, people, yeah, people uh-huh. from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. There's the people of God. They've been purchased. So yeah, this is the first time that they have been explicitly mentioned or explicitly even speaking, and they're crying out, how long, O Lord? And the argument is, well, see, they're now they're still not on the earth because they are in heaven under, under the altar of God. But the point actually is that they're crying out for their answer to their prayers is because they've been suffering. And how long are we going to continue to suffer? I mean, it's how long? Because you're not Lord? suffering in heaven, you're suffering exactly. on earth. Exactly. The suffering that happened on earth. Yeah. And now that's why they're dead and under the altar. So how long are you going to let this happen now? Remember what I said was the first four seals clearly affect the people of God. And the fact that the fifth seal is them crying out, how long, O Lord, is evidence that they're that they the people of God are indeed affected. So yeah, they're, they're there in the first four seals, because they're the ones who are suffering. And we'll get back to that later on. But this is the first time that you've heard from them, although they are in heaven saying, how long, O Lord? But it's interesting that the, the first thing we hear is, is a prayer, it's a, a plea. And so that's that should be something significant. I would think like the first thing you're hearing from them is this prayer. Yeah. So we should probably think of, of the rest of the story in light of this as well, right? Yes. Yeah, so this becomes a very, very, good, very per- perceptive image. This is one of the keys to understanding the book of Revelation. So in chapter five, we had a reference to the prayers of the saints. We'll get to in our mm-hmm. episode when we get to chapter eight, when we discuss the prayers of the saints a little bit. There's golden bowls full of incense, which are full of the prayers of the saints. And in chapter eight, the smoke of the incense went up before God. So the prayers of the saints are going up before God. The question is, is what is the prayers of the saints? And my argument is, this is it. The prayers of the saints are the souls under the altar going, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And the best analogy or best comparison to this is the book of Exodus. When you read the book of Exodus, what you notice in chapter one is the, the Genesis allusions, right? The Israelites were being fruitful and multiplying and Pharaoh goes, oh no, what's going on here? I can't let this happen. But people will commonly talk about how God is never mentioned in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus Mm. until the last three verses of chapter two. So the Israelites are suffering. Pharaoh's like, I don't, I don't know who Joseph is. So I'm going to make things really miserable for you guys, killing the firstborn of the sons of Israel. Things are really bad. Their plight's horrible. And all of a sudden Exodus chapter two Verses uh, 23 through 25, it says this. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Mm. And then God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. And of course, chapter three is God calls Moses. And I think that's a really important point, not only for Exodus, but for the biblical story, including the book of Revelation. And that is God takes notice of them at the end of Exodus chapter two. And Exodus chapter three is God taking action. And he takes action by doing what? By inflicting wrath on Egypt. No, by calling Moses. The way God takes action, the way God brings about the work of his kingdom is by calling his people to do the work for him. So God acts through Moses. So also in the book of Revelation, how long, O Lord? God hears their cry, even though the answer is, well, not, not yet. But note that God's going to answer their cry by empowering his people to do the work of his kingdom. So I think this is a critical passage uh, in the book of Revelation. Again, to summarize, the first four seals describe the suffering that happens as a result of humanity being in power. That suffering affects all of humanity, but especially the poor and the marginalized. Since the church was predominantly members of the poor and the marginalized, they are also suffering. And now they cry out, how long, O Lord? And they're told, well, just a little while, not yet. Hmm. But that doesn't mean that God's not acting. He's going to call his people to do the work for him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in verse 11, they were each given a white robe. Mm-hmm. I know we even talked about that. Was it last week? We have the, yeah, the, so. the color white is significant. Is the rider on the white horse Jesus? You know, we, we've talked yeah. about white a few times. Here, white is definitely a good thing because these yeah. are the good guys. And so they're given a, a white robe. Would we say this is a purity thing? Yeah, like yeah most likely certainly that's the case. That white represents having been redeemed, having been purified. In chapter seven, we're told actually that the clothing of the great multitude was wa- was white because they'd been washed in the blood of the lamb. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the, the beauty of that, because obviously you wash something in blood, it doesn't become white. But in this symbolism here, it's the blood of Christ that's made it pure and, and made it rede- and redeemed them. So, yes. Okay. Well, the problem that I have with this is God doesn't actually answer their prayer. <laughs> like, what, what, where's the response? What's he going to do? Especially you, uh, you just came from this throne room scene where you have this sovereign God sitting on the yes. throne. You have the one who's uh, worthy because he overcame death and he could open up the seals, but then you don't hear anything. What's happening? All right, so there's a pastoral note that we need to address there, right? Mm-hmm, right. People often say, well, God doesn't hear my prayers. And like, he yeah. answers your prayers all the time. Mm-hmm. He answers every prayer. Sometimes the answer is no. And sometimes the answer is not yet. And the answer to the prayers of the saints in chapter six now is, you know what? You need to rest for a little while longer. In verse 11, it says, until both the fellow servants and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. And by the way, there's actually, there could be a distinction between those two people, those two groups. It could be until their fellow servants and their brothers who were to be killed as if they're both going to be killed or until the fellow servants and the brothers who are going to be killed, meaning that the ones who are going to be killed is only the second group. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nonetheless, until they've completed their work. And again, that's the whole idea. Moses, come here. So sorry, guys, I'm not going to answer your prayer right away in the sense that the how long is going to last a little while longer, but it's because I'm calling your brothers and sisters to complete the work that I've set out for them. So this is common in the prophetic literature. By the way, this is another key feature of an apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic writings are like the people of God are suffering. The apocalypse comes along and says, well, here's what's really going on. It just looks like Rome's in power. It just looks like Babylon's in power. But the reality is God's the one sitting on the throne. Then they go, well, that's all great, but how long? And and it's like, well, not a little while longer. So a very, very common way of referring to things in apocalyptic writings. Question on that, because it says that they're told to rest a little while longer. I don't, I don't hear uh, their complaint and saying, yeah, you just need to keep resting because what they're, what they keep doing is enduring. 
enduring the suffering. What is the significance of rest? Is this something where is is that kind of a a hidden term, uh, or is there something significant in the in the word rest itself? Hidden meaning is is it like trying to is that apocalyptic? Is that no? Uh, you know, because these people are under the altar of God, so therefore they're resting. These people God. have died, and because they've died, they're crying out to God, and they are they are resting. We're, we're resting, but what we don't have is the resurrection yet. And we we could surmise. I wouldn't go too far with this path. Yeah, yeah. Surmise. They don't have resurrection bodies. They're not enjoying the fruit of the new Jerusalem and the tree of life and the river of the water of life. They're resting in God's presence, which is pretty good, but it's not the new Jerusalem yet. Mm, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Is it almost just like a figure of speech, kind of like when Paul and first Thessalonians will refer to those who have fallen asleep, that's mm -hmm. dead. So yeah, same, resting. same kind of idea. Yeah, okay. They're resting. And now we get a little bit more insight. We'd say, well, they're not just asleep yeah. in the sense that they're still asleep. They, they physically died. But spiritually, they're under the throne of God and, and resting in his presence, but still crying out for justice because they still have the sense of things are not just. And what's not just is the reason why we're here is because Caesar did this to us. When are you going to bring justice to Caesar? And when are you going to bring your and, and really, as I said, it's not a plea for vengeance. It's a plea for when's your kingdom going to come in fullness. So really, yeah. it's like when's your kingdom coming in fullness, because that's when we get to eat from the tree of life and drink from the river of the water of life. Obviously that might be symbolic, but you get the idea and experience of resurrection life. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, the sixth seal, uh, verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Mm -hmm. Uh, so this this seems to be like the end right here to like what's right, yeah. what's laughter after, after you this. almost expect you know the end concordance follows right chapter six, right? exactly yeah. yeah so the way to make sense of this again as i just reiterated before and that's and i'll keep reiterating it because i think it's for some people it's a new way of thinking about the book of revelation so reiterating it might eventually maybe it'll it'll stick or or maybe if i said it one way before it didn't make sense but maybe repeating it here will make more sense the way to make sense of this is not to suggest that John's seeing the future and the chronological order in which things are unfolding. Instead, John's telling a story, and that story, and again, I don't like to use the word story. I prefer narrative, because narrative means it's a piece of literature. Story, people go, oh, it's either a true story or a false story, mm -hmm. and I'm not thinking that way, and I don't think John was thinking that way. But it's a, a story or a narrative of God's sovereign plan for redeeming the nations and the entirety of creation. Now, what we've seen so far is that in the narrative, God allows the nations to continue to rule. That's why the answer to the prayers of the saints is not yet, because the nations are going to continue to rule because of God's grace, because of God's mercy. He wants to redeem the nations. If he answered the prayers of the saints in chapter five, chapter in, um, in the fifth seal, if he answered the prayers of the saints in the fifth seal, then it would be the end and the nations would no longer be redeemed. Whoever's redeemed, that, that's good, but the rest are, are, are judgment day. Instead, he's allowing them to continue to, to reign. Their reign, however, their rule, however, brings, well, false narratives, uh, war, bloodshed, famine, uh, pestilence, and death. 
And that affects especially the poor and the marginalized, which includes the people of God, who then cry out, how long? As we said, God says, well, not yet, because the nations have not been redeemed and the people of God have not all been killed. So what's happening now in the sixth seal is understanding the structure of what's going on. The first four seals, as we said, are clearly marked out from the fifth and the sixth seal because you know the, a voice says, come, a writer on a, one of the four living creatures says this. There's a rider on a white horse, a rider on a red horse, a rider on a black, you know, different colored horses. And of course, the fifth seal, he says, and I saw. The fifth seal then was the cry for God's people. The sixth seal is now the cry of the nations. So again, hmm. put the fifth and the sixth seals together. One is the cry of God's people to save them. One is the cry of the nations to the rocks to save them. Or they call the mountains and the rocks to save them. So when we realize that Revelation is a narrative, and we understand how John structured it, we now understand what's going on. So yeah, you can say this is the end. It kind of is, and it kind of isn't. Well, let's unpack that a little bit more. But what's really happening is the fifth and the sixth seals then are the parallel responses of the people of God and the nations. And what we know of the nations at this point in time, this is another, another key to the narrative, is they don't repent. They don't cry out to God also like they should. And because I, I, I guess if we said, if they actually cried out to the nations, then the end would actually come. Because that's the whole reason why there's not yet. Um, mm. But instead, they cry out to the rocks and the mountains to save them from the wrath of the lamb. And this is kind of funny, by the way, because lambs are not wrathful beings. Oh, save mm -hmm. us from the wrath of that, that vicious that lamb. lamb. It's like, <laughs> uh, okay, I, I get it. But we, all, we, we get it. And John wants us to see things like that, too. Yeah. So it's interesting. I'm thinking some of the imagery that's being used here earthquakes uh things that happening with the sun the moon the stars i've read enough other apocalyptic literature like i'm thinking there's like a, a line and i think it's in first enoch chapter 88 where it it depicts very similar types of things where stars are falling and, and that and so this is definitely apocalyptic imagery Correct. but you also see this in something like uh the all of it discourse in matthew 25 uh and so i don't which is oftentimes, I think, yeah. is, is, that, is that in 24 at that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, it is 24, yeah. yeah. Uh, so th this could be taken as, well, it's in the Bible there, and it's like, you know, Matthew is historical, this yes. is, you know, so that must be talking about a historical event, but it's definitely apocalyptic apocalyptic imagery. So what do we do with this sort of thing? Should Ought we expect that there will be a day where these sort of literal phenomenons happen, or is this trying to get to something else? Okay, well, the key actually is the, the point that you've made that, this is a common way of speaking in prophetic and apocalyptic literature. So you have Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, Isaiah 24, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 32, Hosea 10, Joel 2, Joel 3, Habakkuk 3, you know, Mark 13, you alluded to Matthew 24, which is the parallel to Mark 13. The, the book of Acts describes the Holy Spirit coming mm -hmm. and the moon mm -hmm. becoming like blood and the stars falling from the sky. And that's Pentecost. And nobody says that in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell, that the moon actually became like blood and then actually became dark. And mm -hmm. we have references to darkness at the cross of Jesus, but there's no reference that it actually became dark when the Holy Spirit descended, even though Joel 2 is quoted in the book of Acts as they'll become darkness and the moon become like blood. Now you do have in Acts chapter one, there was tongues of fire and a violent rushing wind. This is apocalyptic imagery. And we look at this and go, this is the end of the world. But I don't think John's readers would have done that. If this is common, I refer to this as um, cosmic upheaval language. I may have gotten that from some scholar 20 years ago. I just, I simply don't remember whether I coined the phrase or I got it from someone else. I probably got it from somebody else. But cosmic upheaval language 
is the best language to use when God acts within his creation, especially in a covenantal way. In a covenantal way, meaning the fulfillment of God's covenant promises, the birth of Jesus happens. And so we're going to have apocalyptic imagery there. And by the way, we're going to do a webinar in early January, in early um, December. We're going to do a webinar in early December talking about the Christmas story in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke and looking at the imagery that's used there and what is really going on. And I hate to tell you that it's not your normal Christmas sermon that you hear on Christmas Eve every year. Something far deeper, richer, and actually far more beautiful is going on there. You have a star appearing. You have wise men coming. You have you have apocalyptic imagery being used even at the birth of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus, another cosmic upheaval language. The heavens parted, right? And there a, a dove comes down and a voice from the heavens speaks. The crucifixion of Jesus has apocalyptic imagery being used. So uh, with uh, the tombs breaking open and a violent earthquake and darkness. This is simply the language that's used to describe when God invades his creation and acts in accordance with his covenant promises. The prophets just simply, they don't know any other way to describe it as what we call cosmic upheaval language. This doesn't mean that it's the end of the world. It just sounds like it's the end of the world because that's simply the way the prophets are describing it. And maybe the best example of this is Isaiah chapter 13. So in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10 and 13 says this. It says, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Verse 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place and the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Now, this sounds like end of the world language. The stars in, uh, won't shine any longer. The sun will be darkened. And if the sun's darkened, we know from a scientific sense in the modern, modern world that that means death because obviously everything freezes. That means death. But the prophecy in Isaiah 13 is actually describing the destruction of Babylon that was fulfilled in 539 BC. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The destruction of Babylon wasn't the end of the world. It was the end of Babylon. So you're describing the destruction of Babylon as if it's the end of the world, but it was just the destruction of Babylon. So this is this cosmic upheaval language. So I don't think it's actually the end of the world. So what is the significance of earthquake? Because that's something that we've seen in a number of places, even in the New Testament surrounding Jesus. Yes. Uh, so, so what do we do with that here? Okay. So obviously it's apocalyptic imagery. And there are many uses of earthquakes in apocalyptic literature, and it's a symbol for destruction of rebellious nations, as I mentioned already. But earthquakes also signify the presence of God. So remember at Sinai, Moses goes up on a mountain in Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because of the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. So I think the other feature is that it signifies the presence of God. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access, but we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. Uh, In verse 14, John does add that every mountain and island were moved from their places. So how does that relate? Yeah, so I think the significance here then is probably twofold. One Mountains signify kings and kingdoms. Oh, the second possibility then is that 
A mountain is used in prophetic literature because they represent stability in the creation. So the removal of the mountains and the judgment and the earthquake probably signifies, I think it signifies the, the judgment on the kings and the kingdoms, but it also represents the stability of the nations and it's the, the symbol of divine judgment upon the nations. The tragedy, as we alluded to already, is the fact that the nations don't cry out to God in repentance. Instead, they cry out to the mountains. And this is going to continue to happen that the nations don't repent through chapter 9. It's not until chapter 11 that we'll see that the nations actually repent. And that'll be a very important thing to, to flush out why they repent in chapter 11, but not in 6, 7, 8, or 9. Okay. So those who cry out to the mountains and to the rocks, should we say that they represent all of humanity? You had mentioned the nations earlier. You know, we do see different types of people in Revelation. Uh, you know, you kings of the earth, great men, commanders, rich, strong, and all those kind of people. So is this just indicative of like all kinds of people or every person without exception? That, that's right. So remember when you read a list, right? Peoples, tribes, nations, and tongues. Oh, there's four mm -hmm. items in that list. Oh, four represents completion or totality regarding the nations, things like that. So you read a list now, the kings of the earth, one, it, you have to count. The great men, this is my translation, the great men, two, the commanders, three, the rich, four, the strong, five, every slave, six, and every free person, seven. There's seven items in the list. So mm -hmm. yeah, seven represents totality or completion, and it tends to represent the totality of the people upon the earth. But, and we'll discuss this more as we proceed, that doesn't mean that it includes the people of God. Remember the, mm. the fifth seal was the cry of the people of God. And the six seals, the cry of the nations. This is the nations in distinction from the people of God. And again, an important caveat that we have to continue to stress is don't think of us, them, though. Hmm. Okay. Oh, us are the people of God. We're, chapter, we're the fifth seal. They're the sixth seal. I understand why we might do that, but it's dangerous theology to do that because the, the people from the nations are the ones from whom we came, chapter five, verse nine, and they're also the ones from whom will walk in the new Jerusalem. Therefore, they're the object of our witness. And if when we make this us, them, we make ourselves good and them bad. You should be like me. And if you were, you wouldn't suffer. You know, this whole mentality of popular eschatology, popular end times theology is, is really dangerous. Uh, nonetheless, remember the fifth and sixth seal then are the responses of, of the two groups of people in terms of how they respond to the seals. The people of God cry out how long because they're suffering. The nations cry out, hey, mountains and rocks fall on us. It's like, don't you know that the mountains and the rocks are the ones who are causing your problems if, if mm. mountains and rocks symbolize the kings of the earth? Mm. Okay. So then what you're saying is what we're seeing in this crazy, I, I, I do think cosmic upheaval is probably the strongest term. Okay. It, it's just describing the utter chaos in which people are expecting to happen here. You had mentioned the term, like it's trying to push the nations towards repentance. Mm -hmm. And in a way it seems like uh, it, it, it's kind of like what you say. And I, I even hate to use this imagery, but all I could think of is like a, a snake that's like squeezing its prey. Uh, and obviously a snake wants mm. to kill its prey. So I would say in a loving kind of way, it's like, this is what God's doing to like get people's attention. It's like, Hey guys, it's going to get worse and worse. Uh, oh. uh, that's kind of, I know that's just the image that's coming up. Yeah. For me yeah. In, in so what I'm seeing I would here. say, no, I would go the opposite direction on this. Okay. What I think is happening is. Oh, is this like a Romans one? Like he's just giving them up. To exactly. More and more yeah. Stuff. Okay. What we okay. discussed before the first four seals are describing what happens when the nations are in power and the devastation and destruction that they bring. 
and the devastation and destruction they bring does not drive the nations to repentance. Okay. In other words, God's allowing them to, to, to suffer the consequences of human rule, but unfortunately, famines and earthquakes and pestilence and war doesn't drive the nations to go, you know, there's got to be a better way. Mm -hmm, instead mm -hmm. of giving our allegiance to the nations, instead of giving our allegiance to the king, giving our allegiance to the emperor, there's got to be a better way. Let's turn to Christ. They don't do that. The people of God turn to Christ and say, how long are you going to let this go on? Because our suffering is like, you know, how long can we endure this? But the nations cry out to the very ones who are inflicting their suffering, the, the mountains and the rocks, because that symbolizes empires and kingdoms. And they don't turn to God for in repentance. And that's the great mm. irony, a great tragedy. And that's also going to happen in the seven trumpets, that same theme. Okay, interesting. It's interesting too, because I know like the Amish community, they'll do a thing like when a kid turned to 18, mm -hmm. they let them go into the world because they lived yeah. in isolation for so long. And it's their time of, you could be tempted and experience, uh, you know, the worldly life, but hopefully they'll return by their own free will. That's not what's happening here. This isn't God merely giving freedom over to for people to figure out what they want to live in. It's saying, no, this is what you're living in. Uh, you're you're choosing to to serve this. Fine, I'll just give it to you then if this is what you want. In in a sense, it's and I can't even imagine that as a, as a father of a six year old, I like I cringe at the things that he's going to have to mm. endure as he gets older, right, but I right. can only imagine like, like a parent would who's battling codependency and they've been enabling and rescuing. And they finally have to say to their old adult kid who's making poor decisions. Fine. I just have to let you go do this thing that you want to do. If you want to indulge in this thing, fine, do it. And I hope that you'll hit rock bottom. Well, yes. And the hope that you'll hit rock bottom is that when you do hit rock bottom, you see that the path I've been following that, which yes. is the nations and the empires, yep doesn't actually bring any res resolution or justice or yes. end to this. It just continues to, it's war after war and famine after famine and injustice mm -hmm. after injustice, that there is a better way. And that better way is the way of the cross and the way of Christ and the way of God's rule that Jesus is the true Lord. And then here's the next key. And that is, and well, how do they know that narrative? I know is they know the narrative of the nations and the devastation it brings. Well, they know the narrative of Jesus because Christians are mm. modeling the way of Jesus. The sacrificial love for the sake of the other is being modeled all around them, and they turn to that. Now, now the illustration of, of hitting rock bottom, hopefully they realize that even before they hit rock bottom. Sure. The, the goal is that they don't actually even hit rock bottom, yep. but they see the church, and I'll just use the word church here. They see the church or the people of God living out justice and mercy and compassion and sacrificial love for the, for them. And they go, that makes sense. Look at these people. They're caring for the poor. They're caring for the oppressed. They're caring for the marginalized. They're truly bringing justice to the world by their sacrificial love for the sake of the other. I want to live that way. But I know, and here's the other, other part that we'll get to in chapter 13 in the book of Revelation. I do know that if I join them, the people of God, that Rome's going to punish me and maybe I'll lose my job or maybe there'll be economic uh, consequences or repercussions, or maybe I'll even be imprisoned because the sacrificial way, actually, they're getting beheaded over there. Right? Look at the Christians in Syria, the Christians in North Korea. Yeah, that's a better way, but I'm not sure I'm willing to go that way, but all right, I'm, I'm in instead of crying out to the mountains and the rocks, the very ones that are causing their problems. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about rock bottom. It is relative as someone who spent time doing uh, yeah. chemical dependency studies. And I was going to go into that as a career. That's right. That's right. Uh, rock bottom is not homeless 
lost everything, mm. you have a disease and you successfully recovered from an OD. It can be that. It yeah. can also be my boss caught me drunk on the job and threatened to fire me. And oh. so I cleaned up. It can be my wife moved out. It can be my wife divorced. Temporarily me. hoping that temp- I, that I, reform- yeah. oh, I, I never thought about it that way. That's, that's no, right. I mean, so rock bottom, rock is, bottom is what causes you to realize there's got to be a better way. Although some exactly. people never actually hit rock bottom then. It, exactly. Okay. And in some people, unfortunately, we have obviously in America, especially in California, about epidemic of homelessness. And so I see it in all around my neighborhoods. You have people who are living out there and that's someone's son, daughter, dad, uncle, cousin, whatever. For them, they have not hit it yet. So should it, we rename this podcast Psychology Today with Vinny and this exactly. co-host Rob? Because that's exactly. really good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very good. Uh, no, I'm not a really psychologist. I just play one on TV. But... <laughs> and I did sleep at a Holiday Inn last night. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but the idea is, especially when it comes yeah. to repentance, rock bottom is something that is completely relative. And for one person, mm. it could be the idea of something terrible. And for another person, it could be having to live in that filth. And so, and, and it's, it's a spectrum, right? And so yes. what do you want it to be? So, Hey, nations, it doesn't have to get as bad as you think it is uh, in order to get there. Repent. <laughs> yes. And let's add this caveat. I know we said this before, but just want to make sure that we stress this point. It's not God saying, well, let me have, let these things, or let me cause these things to happen to you so that you'll be mm-hmm. driven to repentance. It's God saying, I hope you have to, you can come to repentance without ever experiencing any of those things. Mm-hmm. But if you do, these things are what happens because that's the God that you're worshiping and that's what they do instead of following me. So yeah, yeah, yeah very good. Well, so we finished six seals. We, um, yeah, we're done. We, we keep going. Yeah, we're done. We, we get into chapter seven. So we, we would assume yeah. that we would hear now the seventh seal was open. Yeah, yeah. Why don't but you go don't... ahead and read the first four verses and then let's discuss it as we go. Yeah. Of chapter seven. Of chapter okay. seven. I'm sorry. Revelation seven, okay. one through four. So now we're in seven. So yeah. uh, after this, I saw four angels. So right there, you have this after this kind mm-hmm. of language. So after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Very good. Now, let me go ahead and address the, after this question think, point that you brought up after this is a literary device that carries forth the narrative, which in terms of the vision says, after I saw, I saw this. And after I saw this, I saw this instead of being used by the popular end times understanding of that the next thing that happens after that is this. That's not what's happening. It's a literary. It's device. not chronological. It's, it's carrying forth a literary narrative, not mm-hmm. a historical or chronological narrative. So mm-hmm. yeah, so very in- important now to notice that the seventh seal does not immediately follow. That's why there's a chapter break. The seventh seal doesn't come till chapter chapter eight, verse one, and we have what we call an interlude, and it's caused different things, but it's called an interlude or a, a pause. All of a sudden, the narrative stops. Now, it's going to be very important to notice that in the middle of the seven trumpets, after the sixth trumpet and before the seventh trumpet, there'll be another pause, another interlude. So this pause occurs after the sixth seal and before the seventh seal, and also after the sixth trumpet and before the seventh trumpet, there will also be another literary pause. And in both cases, the one that occurs here in chapter seven and the one that occurs in chapter 10 and 11, 
in the middle of the series, the pause is to describe the people of God. Mm. So that's a very important distinction. So again, this is showing you the literary nature of it, that he's describing the six seal, the seven seals, and then he stops, inserts a discussion about the people of God, then he describes the seven trumpets and stops after the sixth one and describes the people of God again. And we'll have to look at those two passages very carefully. Mm. Now, you said the people of God, but popularly, and maybe yeah. not even popularly, like this is one of those disputed passages. Yeah, right. Chapter seven, you, I mean, yeah. Yeah, chapter seven, like who are these people, uh, which I know we'll get into. Um, but you you do have these two groups, right? You you have 144,000, you have a great multitude. You know, if it is talking about the people of God in the midst of the seals, why do we have two different identifications of people groups? Okay, so what you're referring to is that in verses one through four that you read here, just in case the listener is not tracking mm -hmm. with, the, with the question, verses one through four describe uh, a 144,000 who have the seal of God on their foreheads, and they're from every tribe of the, of the sons of Israel. And then in verses five through nine, five, I'm sorry, five through eight, it lists the tribes. Mm -hmm. Then in verses nine, it says, I saw a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation. Again, you have to count nation, tribe, people, and tongue. That's four. Standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. And as you go down a little bit further in verse 13, it says, one of the elders said to John, who are these who are in white robes? And John's like, I don't know. Who are they? In verse 14, he says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So it seems as though you have 144,000 ethnic Israelites who are numbered, who are living on the earth. And then you have a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue who have come out of the great tribulation and they're now in heaven. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the argument is they're clearly two, dis two distinct groups. And I don't think they are two distinct, distinct groups at all. And what we'll discuss, and we probably won't get there tonight, or today on this particular episode. So we'll, we'll kind of go into more detail next time. But the way I would say it is, is promise and fulfillment. Hmm. God's promise to Abraham that he will make a great nation from them so much so that they'll become an uncountable multitude from all the nations of the earth. Hmm. Uh, 144,000 Israelites are now fulfilled because they became a great multitude, which no one could count. A countable multitude became an uncountable multitude from ethnic Israel being fulfilled in all the nations, which, and by the way, all the nations has to include Israel also. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then if we, cause we're going to comb through this in a deeper kind of way, yeah. but if, just to look at those first few verses okay. of chapter seven, you have four angels holding back four winds. So you have different yes. characters. I would say angels and the wind is a character in a sense, because uh, it's probably representing a, a part of the story. You then have, the, the number four, which we want to always be aware of this. So how would, we, how would we look at these things? Okay. So the number four, again, represents totality with regards to creation. And this is a clear example or illustration of that. You know, when I say, hey, the number four represents totality with regards to creation, I usually just go to chapter seven, verse one, and say, see, there are four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding at the four winds of the earth. It's just all the directions. It's totality with regard to creation. But what's key now is to, represent, to recognize the fact that this interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal is describing the people of God. And what's happening here, as well as the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets, is it's describing the people of God in the midst of 
what we might call the tribulation. I, I hesitate to use that word because it usually means some things to certain people. That you don't mean not, a seven-year tribulation. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean like a seven-year futuristic tribulation. I mean the tribulation that has begun with the resurrection of Jesus or the descending of the Holy Spirit that carries through the entire period of the, of the New Testament until the second coming of Jesus, that entire uh, period of time. So it's describing the people of God in the midst of that. And what it's doing is it's going backwards in time to say, in terms of narrative time, so that the people of God are thinking, oh no, this is horrible. If the first four seals are affecting us, and I think John's readers would, would have known that. Oh no, we are the ones who are being slain. We are the ones who are suffering famine. We are the ones who are being killed and bloodshed and pestilence. This is affecting us. Oh no. And John's like, hey, let me stop for a second. Let me remind you that you guys have been sealed by God. So this interlude is to go, oh, yeah, it's not as bad as you think in the sense that, yeah, you're going to suffer. That's why the souls under the altar, the ones who've been killed, you're going to be killed. But I'm going to give my seal upon you so that you can persevere and that you can endure. Now, the reason why I think that's defendable, by the way, and I actually just didn't even notice this until the other day when we were preparing for this episode, Vinny. And you know, I've been doing this like the entire, the last mm. couple of years, but the four corners of the earth or the, the, the phrase four corners only occurs twice mm. in the book of revelation. It occurs here. So the four angels in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. The second occurrence of the four corners of the earth is in chapter 20. Mm. And it's, it's the description of what we'll get to which I think this is the Armageddon passage. And we'll discuss that in great detail later on. So the Armageddon passes is in chapter 16, but it's reiterated in chapter 19, verses 19, verse 19, and then in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. And in chapter 20, verse 7, it says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. In verse 8, this is the key verse now, verse 8, he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Ah, the four corners of the earth is where the nations are. Mm -hmm. And the nations, it says, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And what I will argue strongly and repeat this often is that in the book of Revelation, the war is what the nations wage or Satan wages. Of course, Satan's the ones empowering the nations. They wage against Jesus or against Jesus and the people of God or just against the people of God. And you put all that mm. together. It's the war that Satan wages by empowering the nations to wage war against Christ. And he wages war against Christ by fighting against the people of God. And so the four corners of the earth is where the nations are. And so if we take that back to Revelation chapter seven, verse one, we go, the four angels are staying at the four corners of the earth because that's where the nations are who are about to wage war against the people of God. And he's holding back the four winds of the earth saying, oh, the angels are holding back the nations, the four horsemen, so they cannot inflict their suffering upon the people of God until the people of God have been sealed. Hmm. Gosh, how do I ask this question? Yeah. In, in our modern times, when we tell stories, they're linear. That's how you yeah. make sense of a story. It's this, then this, then this, then this. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way our minds categorize thoughts and can make sense of things. What you see you know, in, in just an Eastern style writing, especially in apocalyptic writing, they, they're not functioning in that linear A, then B, then C, then D. They might be jumping around. They might be looking at things more you know, like mm -hmm. the story, instead of being on a flat 2D timeline, the story is happening in a sphere and you're looking at the sphere from all different angles, you know, and, and so it might be common to to switch around. I'm even thinking of even in the Gospels and I, and I don't have the mm. reference in front of it. I want to say like John introduces 
a miracle that Jesus does or an event that Jesus does, like in chapter two of his gospel that Mark might introduce in the later part of his gospel. Yeah, yeah. so the, uh, and actually Mark two, uh, John two and Mark 11, where uh, yeah, Jesus yeah. says on the temple of God and goes in and cleanses the temple. So yeah, yeah, exactly. and, yeah. And so that I mean, this is just what we're saying is apocalyptic writing in general is going to do. It's not, especially Revelation. It's not going to be looking at things from an A then B then C from a timeline standpoint. And just Jewish writing in general is not concerned with documenting things in a chronological chronological kind of way, right? That's actually correct, and it's, it's very corrective, by the way, because David slays Goliath, and then in the next chapter, David's introduced. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where do you know who David is? What are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. uh, even history was not written in the same way mm -hmm. that we write history. We think chronologically. Now, there's a little bit where like you can get the arts of a movie or of a book where they'll sure. flash back and forth. Yep. And that's the point that artistic license allows you to do that. So we don't think of history of doing that, but we do think of artistic writing that does that. And that's the best way to describe the biblical text. That it's but artistic. does that become a problem when... And I'll say this as someone who comes up from an, an American evangelical tradition. Yes. Since we're rightly taught that the Bible is God's word, it can be trusted, right, yeah. these sorts of things. We then also assume, well, therefore God was speaking as a stenographer or he was, he was writing in a forensic sort of way in which it must make sense and be laid out in a linear kind of way. And we don't always take into account genre and the literary devices that are used. That's a danger of a radical conservative. And it's, it's only a small group that, that hold mm -hmm. that view approach to interpreting the text that it's dictated essentially and that's by the way islamic in mm -hmm. islam the quran was dictated it's not yeah. human at all we believe in christian theology that the bible is god as peter says carrying along men through the holy spirit it's both divine and human an analogy of that of course is the incarnation of christ he's both divine and human what we see when we read the text is it's it's certainly both and some accent one more than the other, right? The liberal might accent more the humanness, the mm -hmm. conservative might accent more the divineness of it. But we see the fact that First Peter and Second Peter, let's say they're both written by Peter, the Greek in both texts are radically different. So we might conclude, well, one was written by Peter and one was written by a scribe, or one was written by scribe A and one was written by scribe B, and one was really good at Greek and one wasn't good at Greek. Whatever the difference is, the reality is, uh, Tertius in the book of Romans says, hey, by the mm -hmm. way, I send my greetings to you. You're like, wait a minute, this is the, the Holy Spirit guiding Paul. Tertius, you're the scribe. You cannot insert your own words into the text here. So yeah, uh, we have to understand the way the text was written and the narrative structure of the text and how the author did it. And in the book of Revelation, John's writing this beautiful narrative. The book, By the way, the Genesis 1 is a beautiful narrative too. Day 1 is filled on day mm -hmm. 4. Day 2, what he creates, uh, is filled on day 5. Day 3, what he creates on day 3. The space is filled on day 6. It's, it's, it's got this literary structure to it that tells you how we're supposed to read the text. And so the same thing's happening in the book of Revelation. Yeah, exactly. When we get back to then chapter 7, I don't even want to speak in terms of the chronology, but... right. You know, but, but this isn't something where after the events of chapter six, then we find the events exactly. of chapter seven. We're not saying that that is what's happening. No. And first off, I would not use the word events because that mm -hmm. seems to imply something that actually happens in space and time mm -hmm. as the way it's depicted. So these are describing events like, yeah, the, the kings of the earth are creating wars. That's true. But it's describing a narrative to illustrate the nature of the kingdom of God versus the nature of the kingdom of the world. Yeah, and as far as narrative time is concerned, chapter seven, at least the first part of chapter seven, 
the 144,000 episode, goes back in narrative time to prior to the unleashing of the first four seals. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So then getting to the question of the sealed ones, uh, does that mean they're not going to have to suffer anything? The answer is no. Being sealed does not mean that we're exempt from suffering. It means that there's a sovereign care of God for them to help us endure. Now, of course, the problem here becomes this, the way we like to read things in an either or type of mentality, you know, oh, it's either sovereignty of God or man's free will, either it's free choice or predestination. And the answer is no, there's, it's a both and. So the mm -hmm. point of that is God's sealing us to remind us of his sovereign presence amongst us so that we may endure and we have God's grace so that we can endure, but it doesn't mean that we don't, that we're exempt from suffering. And it doesn't mean that we have no responsibility to actually endure on our own as well. Well, I, I wouldn't even say on our own. I'd say to endure as we're empowered by the grace of God. So it's both, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength and it's both, and it's, and I'm doing all things, mm -hmm. but I'm not doing it on my own strength. I'm doing it as by the power of the Holy Spirit. So not by my, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So it's the Holy Spirit empowering us to overcome, which doesn't guarantee that we're going to overcome, but it guarantees that we have what we need to overcome. And now we need to overcome. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you look back to the Old Testament and there's yeah. suffering all over the place by God's people. Sometimes, you know, unjustly, it just happened. You, yeah. you look at Egypt uh, and then you look at, you know, the, the exile. It's, it was a result of their own sin. But, it, you know, you, you see the faithfulness of people who are there. Would we say that what we're reading here, could we look back and look at the Old Testament, especially talking about how, how much uh, allusions there are to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation? Yes. In fact, so one of the arguments that's made by the popular understanding of the end times is the fact that, oh, God's people don't suffer because mm -hmm. the Israelites didn't suffer in Egypt. And Egypt is, uh, the plagues in Egypt are not relevant to the seven seals. They are relevant to the discussion of the seven trumpets and the seven bulls. So we'll address that argument when we get to the trumpets and the bulls. We don't need to address it here. Here, the people of God are sealed, and that the best parallel to that seems to be the marking, and I'll just use the word marking depending on your translation, that happens in Ezekiel chapter 9. So in Ezekiel chapter 9, what's happening is God's gonna, about to bring judgment, but in the midst of his judgment, he's going to preserve a remnant. So it says in verse 4 of Ezekiel chapter 9, it says, you know, go throughout the midst of the city, God, the Lord's telling an angel, go through the midst of, a, of the city, and even through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. So what happens then is, and note the fact that there's a mark on the foreheads, which certainly seems to correspond to the seal of God in the foreheads of the people of God in the book of Revelation. And thus what's happening in, in Ezekiel chapter nine is God's people are being sealed so that they can be a faithful remnant. Because remember, the way God's going to answer the prayers of the saints is he's going to say, hey, Moses, come here, and that Moses in the New Testament sense would be us. Mm -hmm. I know we'll probably get to marking chapter 13. Yeah, yeah, but the would, mark of the beast. Would yeah. we, but just quickly, would we say there's a relation to yes. the marking that happens of the people of not God, the yes. people of the beast? Absolutely, and okay. being, it's, in, it's emphatically clear when you look at the literary structure of the account of the number 666, the chapter break at the end of chapter 13 and the chapter break for chapter 14 is a bad chapter break because mm -hmm. the ceiling of the 144,000 occur again or appear again in chapter 14 
And it's clearly, they appear in contrast to those who have the mark of the beast on their foreheads. Yes. Mm, okay. Or their right hand. Yep. Yeah. In the New Testament, do we see the, the Holy Spirit being called the seal of God anywhere else? Yes, we do. And in fact, I think that's the answer here, that the seal is the Holy Spirit, as I alluded to before, that the seal of God on the people of God is to say, hey, look, I'm going to give you all that you need so that you can endure. You're under God's sovereign protection. Your salvation secure. Just persevere and be faithful, which doesn't deny the human responsibility element of it for us to overcome. But the two passages will be 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, and Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20, 21 and 22, it says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And that we can discuss more, but the idea of a pledge is a, a guarantee of our inheritance, which the Ephesians text says, I think, in the NIV. So in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, verses 13 and 14, In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And I think the NIV says as a, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And then it says, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So clearly, I think John's readers go approach the book of Revelation already knowing that the seal of God in the, in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit. So when John says that God has given us a, the seal on 144,000, like, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. I, I think that they would have assumed that. Hmm. So then we could kind of look at this passage and say, the seal of God is placed on 144,000 people that so far we have identified as 12,000 from the tribes of Israel. That's right. uh, and this happens before the four horsemen, not events, but the, yeah. the, the, the first the narrative of, uh, of the four horsemen is the narrative the of the, of the four, yes. yeah, yep. which happens in the, in the four seals before those are unleashed. The seal represents the Holy spirit, yep. the seal that's placed on these people. And so John's purpose is, it's really to remind the people of God that they are under God's protection and you're going to persevere. Don't worry about it. Exactly. Exactly. Well stated. Another way of saying it would be that when you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, and again, charismatics might want to nuance this a little bit, you receive the Holy Spirit. And a marking on your forehead is often a branding of slaves, and it signifies ownership. That when you receive Jesus as Lord, you are saying, I'm owned by Christ. I'm mm. Christ's property. I'm, or New Testament language will be we're God's sons or God's sons and daughters or we're children of God. We're owned by God and God's marked us. And the idea becomes, oh, guess what's going to happen now? You're going to struggle for food and clothing, and you may very well be persecuted because you're giving allegiance to Jesus and not to Caesar. But endure and encourage and be encouraged to overcome because God's given us his spirit so that we might persevere. And that's the message of the, of the New Testament. And that is God hears the cries of his people. How long? He says, Moses, come here. That's us. We're called to faithfully, lovingly, sacrificially lay down our lives for the sake of the nations. The nations are not going to be redeemed because they see how bad it is by, by the nations being in power. That doesn't bring them to repentance. They're going to be redeemed when they look and go, there's another way of doing kingdoms. There's mm. another way of doing, of doing power. And I see that in the way the Christians behave. And that brings them to repentance. And the Christians are therefore to endure out of love for the nations so that the nations might indeed be redeemed. 
We don't need to go any further, by the way. That's the whole book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everything else is just so, details. So let's end the podcast. Yeah, we're done. Uh, let's go back to Second <laughs> Corinthians next week. Yeah, I think, we, I exactly. think we left off there. Yeah, yeah. All right. People want to know are the 144,000 actually Jewish people? Is it actually 144,000 people or not? Are they? Is it a literal number? And is and how do we understand the great multitude? So all right, we'll do we'll do one more episode then next week. How's that? And then we're done. And then we'll be done. And then we'll do it. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll figure out a reason to do another episode. Unless we get an influx of uh, uh, support. Yeah. So if you wanted to keep this podcast going, <laughs> there you go. There we're you putting go. on you people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you do, we'll send you a prayer hanky too. Yeah. Uh, as a prayer with, hanky, with yeah. your $100 saying that. Yeah. <laughs> we do need support, by the way. So thank you for that plug. But uh, nonetheless, so yes. Uh, and a couple of commercial notes, by the way. We've got a couple of uh, webinars coming up by the time this podcast releases. Uh, I will have already done a podcast on understanding the, the end times and the, and the New Testament and Jesus, specifically with regard to the Israel-Palestinian conflict. That will be found on nemi.network, N-E-M-E.network. And you can find that there, even though it's already happened, all you can do is sign up and register for it and you'll get the link for that. I will be doing a, a Determined Truth webinar. So we're going to start a new webinar series now. Ideally, once a month, we may not have it every single month, but in November, I believe it's on November 2nd, and we'll have hopefully a registration link up by the time this podcast airs, we'll have a registration link up on determinedtruth.com, one word, determined truth. And that webinar will be discussing the book of Joshua and violence in the book of Joshua and warfare in the book of Joshua. It relates a lot to what we're doing here in the book of Revelation, but how do we understand Joshua? How do we understand the violence of Joshua? Uh, go slaughter all the inhabitants, including women and children and, and all that. We're also going to take that conversation and say, how, how has Joshua been appropriated in the mm-hmm. modern conflicts? And to give you a clue, it was appropriated by the colonialists and American colonialism, and it was being uh, appropriated by Israeli uh, colonial settlerism as well. And so we'll, we'll talk about that and how do we understand the biblical story, the justice issue. I think Joshua and violence is one of the biggest problems that we have in the biblical text. I'd be a lot more comfortable if, the, if there was no Joshua in the story, because I think it creates a, a great tension and great problem. So we're going to, I'm going to bring on a scholar, uh, Daniel Hawk, who's a prolific Old Testament scholar on the book of Joshua to discuss Joshua and those questions there. Okay, great. Yep. And then next week, we'll continue figuring out who exactly are these great multitude people and how do they relate to the 144,000? Exactly. Fun times. Awesome, man. And we're, hey, the big news happened. This isn't going to be in real time. This because we're a few weeks out. Oh, yeah. uh, but you and I are yes. actually going to see each other face to face. We are. Uh, y- y- you we're will speak bro to hugs. bro hugs. <laughs> bro hugs with a fist pounding on the back. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, oh, oh, no, only on one side, though, right? Yeah, oh, a, side a bro hug. Yeah, it's a side bro hug. God. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I have to do. That's yeah. the church version. That's the way it. real men do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so we're going to be doing some uh, fun things that are going to be popping up as well. So I'll get to yeah. see you at the end. We're going to do week. some YouTube videos that will be popping up hopefully on the Determined Truth uh, YouTube page whenever we have time to edit the ones. Yes, that we're exactly. Gonna record. So I can't promise yeah, yeah. the timeline is when they'll be out, but we're going to be yeah. doing some uh, YouTube videos, like three minute shorts on various questions. Yeah. If if we happen to have a listener who is also savvy in Final Cut Pro and uh, you want to donate your time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can do it. But if you are savvy in it and you want to donate your time, we would love to have your expertise in this. Yeah, It'd be a yeah. lot better quality than me cutting and, and pasting it myself. So, yep. Exactly. What I think we should do is we should just actually do puppeteers and have Bert and Ernie up there and we'll just voice them. Cool. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this. We'll catch you guys next time. 
to thank you for joining us on today's podcast, and we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.